Hello, heroes, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. My guest today is Catherine Castillo-Jones, sociologist and designer of Too Many LARPs to List, including the hugely influential Katie Stanton's Candyland, which she co-designed with Julia Ellingbo. Kat did a keynote speech on sexuality and intimacy in design at this year's Living Games, and between that and her workshop with Mo Turkington on LARP sex mechanics, I knew I had to have her on the show. This interview was recorded on a sleepy, rainy Saturday morning, and if it's possible for you to experience it the same way, that would be perfect. Let's get right to it. So I really wanted to have you on the show after listening to um, your keynote at Living Games, um, which was about sexuality and intimacy in LARP. Uh, and one of the first points you make which I think really resonated with people was that the response to any kind of sexuality being in a LARP design is usually like terror. Like people are like afraid. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, I think that there's sort of two things going on. The, The first thing is that I think North Americans in particular tend to view sex as something that is a little scary. Uh, it's taboo. It's um, something that needs a content warning. It's it's something that makes people nervous and uncomfortable. And I think particularly if you're exploring it or talking about it in spaces with people that you might not know very well. And so I think that is then compounded by the fact that LARP tends to make a lot of people nervous. I think because LARP, unlike tabletop, is so much more embodied. Uh, You are acting out your character with your body. Um, It's your body that's sort of feeling and experiencing a lot of the things that your character is feeling and experiencing. And so I think when you put those two things in combination, it really ratchets up the anxiety and the the scariness. Uh, And I think as an organizer, there's always a worry uh, that something is going to go wrong. Um, And I think with some good reason, but also I think a little bit, it gets a little overblown, this sort of fear that people have that that something is going to in terms of sort of sexual content, as opposed to sort of games where people are, are hitting each other with swords or engaging in sort of physical violence, which makes me way, way more nervous than mm-hmm. than dealing with sex and intimacy. What, what are people afraid of, do you think? Um, I think that uh, because sexuality is such a private thing that you're not really sure where people are coming from. And I think the other thing about sex in the North American context is that we can sometimes get this sense of like, well, but sex is everywhere, right? Um, mm. You know, sex is in advertising and in the media and... So on the one hand, it seems like, well, yeah, we deal with sex all the time. But I think discussions of actual experiences of sex and sort of frank discussions of, you know, what's normal and what's not and what's okay and what's not and what's pleasurable and what's not, those don't tend to happen as much. Um, And so we get sort of saturated with images of sex, but they all tend to be this very sort of normative, very sort of media-focused portrayal of sex. And so I think 
it's sort of like opening a Pandora's box in a way. Like you're not really sure what's gonna what's gonna be in there, and I think that that makes people nervous um, because I think there's the potential for it to be a really cool experience and to learn things and to grow. But there's also, I think, the potential to um, explore content that's going to make people uncomfortable or going to trigger people or that's just going to to end up being a really unpleasant experience for everyone. Right. So there's, you know, the image of sex or the appearance of sex is everywhere, but the substance and having a real conversation about it is exactly. not really anywhere. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, in your games... Is that something that you're aiming for? Are you trying to open up those conversations or have the have portray sex in a way that is like meaningful or real or Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that I put sexual content or even discussions of sexuality in my games is because I do want to open up spaces for those conversations. And I think LARP for me is one of those really great mediums in which a really wide variety of stories can be told. And because it's not controlled in the same way that the media is, because it's so much more participant driven, you can tell a lot of those stories that wouldn't otherwise get told anywhere else. And you can explore those experiences that might not make it into mainstream media, that might not be things that people have gotten a chance to share or gotten a chance to explore in any other space. I got to play uh, Candyland 2, Ashley's Bachelorette Party, um, which you designed with Julia Ellingbow, also at Living Games, which, you know, is a game that is about sexuality where nobody is having sex. I can't imagine any characters in that game having sex. Nobody fucks at a Bachelorette Party. No. <laughs> but but is like, is about sexuality and is about also about family and spirituality. Um, has that game resulted in the kinds of conversations or reactions that you were expecting? Um, I think that it has. There's definitely a sense that Julie and I have gotten after running the game that it's an experience that both is sort of lighthearted and fun, but that also brings up topics that people might not have otherwise gotten a chance to talk about. And there's usually one or two players after the game who talk about how something in the game resonated with their experience of sexuality, whether it was a character that they felt was really similar to themselves or whether it was a discussion that they had that they sort of not gotten a chance to have but really wanted to or whether it was a topic that they felt like they'd always thought a lot about but hadn't really gotten a chance to explore, like the overlap between spirituality and sexuality, for instance, or um, sort of the ways that that different generations of women experience their sexuality and, and how to sort of talk across those differences. So I do feel like it definitely does, for some players, um, open up that space for that discussion. Cool. I've yet to play uh, the first Candyland game, Katie Stanton's Candyland. For any of our listeners who might not know, what is Candyland about? Um, so Candyland, like you said, there are two versions of Candyland. Um, the first version that we wrote is set at a feminist bookstore in the 1970s. And the second version that we wrote, Ashley's Bachelorette Party, is set at a bachelorette party where um, one of the hosts has sort of inadvertently invited the bride-to-be's family, including her abuela, her grandmother, mm -hmm. and her, her sort of future in-laws. And Julie and I had been talking one night about um, these sex toy parties and how neither of us had ever gone to one of these sex toy parties, but we sort of had always wanted to. Um, and we had this moment where we both looked at each other and were like, 
we should write a LARP. <laughs> um, and so it started as this sort of like, hey, we've always wanted to go to a sex toy party. We'll, we'll write a, a LARP about a sex toy party. Um, but as we started working on it, we got into all of these discussions of feminism and the different ways that different feminists deal with sexuality um, and the ways that different women deal with sexuality. And so we ended up writing a game about sex toys that was also about feminism and sexuality and uh, different generations of women. And when we started writing Ashley's Bachelorette Party, we decided that the themes that we wanted to explore in that one were, as you said, family and spirituality and how that intersects with sexuality. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting because you sort of have these two families plus a couple of friends of the bride and... Um, and one of the families is white and the other one is uh, Latina and th that family is Catholic and the other family is this kind of a relatively conservative Protestant tradition. And then, you know, like you said, there's the abuela and then there's, you know, really young folks. I think the youngest character is like 18 or something and it's just like, oh, I got invited to the grown up party. And so there's all these kinds of different intersections of different identities that end up with like really, really rich characters and nobody is one note, you know, everyone has a couple of interesting things. You know, we've talked about how sexuality is like a frightening topic for people. And I feel like religion and family are also almost equally frightening. In that design, I mean, to what degree do you have to warm people up to those kinds of things or help them overcome? I don't know, I feel like people have a lot of uh, blocks when it comes to talking and, and engaging with that kind of stuff. When you're writing a game like this, you want characters who are complex. Mm. Um, and one of the things that Julie and I worked really hard with in, in both of the games was making sure that none of these characters were just sort of one dimensional or two dimensional stereotypes, but that had this richness to them and that had potential connections that they could make with characters who on the surface might seem completely opposite to them. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing is that both Katie Stanton's Candyland and Ashley's Bachelorette Party are set in settings where you're engaging in lots of little activities. Um, I sometimes think of the this these two LARPs as like mini LARPs within a larger LARP. And I think having those activities, just like in an actual sort of bachelorette party or an actual sort of social gathering where you have a bunch of strangers together, those activities help break the ice. Um, they help you learn what you might have in common with someone that you have just met. Uh, they help create a space where you feel more comfortable sharing things about yourself that you might not feel comfortable uh, sharing. And in the case of Ashley's bachelorette party, we decided to include a drink mechanic. Because um, one of the things that we thought a lot about with bachelorette parties was how alcohol played such a big role. Um, and when we were researching the game, we went online and did a lot of research on like Pinterest and blog posts about bachelorette parties. And almost every one of these was like, and then play a bunch of drinking games so that everybody gets a little tipsy and feels comfortable talking about sex. Right. And we were, we were totally uncomfortable with actually having people drink in the game. We were like, that seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. But we loved the idea of giving people an alibi mm -hmm. to feel relaxed enough as their character that they would start to talk about things, have these lowered inhibitions so that they would share things or, or discuss things that they otherwise wouldn't feel as comfortable talking about. 
So I think giving players the tools and creating that space within the game uh, really helps to make people feel comfortable. And I think the fact that you're talking about the sexuality of a character as opposed to yourself also is really powerful in breaking down some of those barriers. That's really interesting. Um, I'm wondering also, uh, are we going to see any more games set in the Candyverse? And what kind of themes will they tackle on top of sexuality? We are definitely uh, discussing some more games set in the Candyverse. I think we have so much fun writing them and so much fun running them that we definitely want to see more. And I know one that we've been talking about recently is writing one that is much more explicitly about queer sexuality. So both um, Ashley's Bachelorette Party and Katie Stan's Candyland are really explicitly about women's sexuality. And so all of the characters in both those games are, are women. But we were interested in exploring how do these discussions change when you have a group of people that identify as queer? Um, and what do those discussions look like? Um, and so we've sort of been tossing around ideas. Do we want to set it at a sort of a workshop at a Pride March? Do we want to set it at a queer sex shop? Um, but yeah, that's definitely sort of the next the next space that we want to want to look at is what do discussions of queer sexuality look like, and how do how do those take place? And what does the design process look like? Uh, you know, for you and Julia working together versus you working on something on your own. It really depends. So for me, especially I think when I'm collaborating with someone, um, the design process sort of really quickly in the initial stages, um, you sort of feed off of each other's energy. Um, somebody might have like a really busy workload or like family stuff is coming up and the other person can do some work and then pass it off. Uh, so that's really great. And I feel like uh, with Julie and I, it's it's often this sort of like, we get this idea and we get really, really excited about it. And um, we sort of get a bunch of stuff down on paper and then sort of slowly refine it over time. Um, and that tends to be my, my collaborative process that me and whoever I'm working with, it's like we get really excited about this idea and we... Mm -hmm. we get a bunch of notes down on paper, send each other Google Docs, and then have to sort of refine it um, into something that's actually playable. Whereas I think for me, sometimes something can sit in a notebook or on my computer for months or years before I get sort of the prod that I need to go back and and sort of finish it. And I find that for myself, um, one of the things that really helps is to have some sort of deadline, whether that's a game competition that I want to submit for, or whether that's a, a particular convention or LARP festival that I want to, to play the game at. Um, having that kind of a deadline and an end in sight is usually what gets me to actually complete games. Um, a lot of the, the games that are sort of languishing are games that I haven't quite found the right format for yet. So that kind of external pressure, whether it's from, you know, someone else who's invested in it or from some kind of deadline or, you know, it has to be done for this con or this event can be very useful, it sounds like. I found that for me, that tends to be sort of my writing process, no matter whether I'm doing sort of academic writing or sort of game design writing. I need that that external pressure to get me to prioritize um, and sometimes just to get those creative juices flowing because I, I can keep it sort of present in my mind as I'm going about my day. Uh, you know, a lot of your, your work, uh, the Candyland games for sure, but also, you know, I'm thinking of Bloodnet and uh, Blood on the Bayou, um, fall under the, the parlor sandbox type of LARP. 
Um, what defines Parlor Sandbox to you? Um, so Parlor Sandbox games, um, I think, are games that uh, Evan Turner and I started working on. Evan was asked to develop a live-action version of Swords Without Master and really has this strong love of sort of Conan the Barbarian, uh, Fafford and Grey Mouser, like pulpy yeah, yeah. sword and sorcery kind of stuff and really wanted to make this cool sword and sorcery LARP. Um, but where we were going to be running it was at this um, LARP festival called Intercon. Um, and Intercon is a parlor LARP festival. So you get a, a large convention room or maybe two rooms or a hotel room. And that is the space that you have to run your game. So we really started thinking, how can we create these genre LARPs that have these really rich settings and locations um, that have these really epic plots, um, but do it in a way that we can run it in a four hour slot in a hotel or a convention center. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of the Parlor Sandbox. So I think Parlor Sandbox is a lot about genre. Um, it's running these sort of very genre heavy LARPs that tend to have a lot of interesting locations to explore. But it's also about the way that we create story and really um, trying to provide a collaborative story experience um, as opposed to sort of an experience where you go in and the characters and the plot are all set for you by the organizers, um, but but really giving you a sandbox, right, where you can go in and and play in the world, right. And there's this really heavy emphasis on like location and being able to have different locations that are in some way distinguished, but not through like decorations or sets or whatever, but rather by doing them just sort of trying to cons construct like a mutually imagined spaces, I guess. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely, I feel like that's such a good way to describe it, right? Mutually imagined spaces. For me, one of the, the aspects of, of the Parlor Sandbox that got me so excited when we started designing was how similar it was to my experiences of, of playing pretend as a kid, which I did all the time. And really, you know, creating these worlds out of, out of nothing, right? Or, you know, you had a stick that became a sword or you had a towel that became a cape, um, but really relying so heavily on the imaginations of the people that you were playing with to create this really rich world. And in situations where you don't have sort of the money to have really fancy locations or really fancy props, being able to pull players in by asking them to do that imaginative work and also to work together to sort of imagine, you know, what things can happen in this space? Uh, what kind of stories do we want to tell together um, as opposed to to relying on sort of an external story that needs to be uh, discovered? Right, right. It's that emphasis on creation, or, you know, co-creation mm -hmm. rather than discovery of something that exists. Yes. Uh, when I got to play, I think it was a playtest of Blood on the Bayou, which is your sort of um, sexy vampire LARP. There was this really interesting thing where we had a number of rooms and each room was a location, but the locations sort of in the physical space of the game were very, very far apart, but you could just kind of phase into them and out of them. It sort of reminded me of the way that TV shows use sets. You know, like you don't see people walking from one uh -huh. house to another. That's just, you know, there's this guy's house and that guy's house. 
And is that intentional? Like, what what other kinds of techniques do you borrow from TV uh, in in building a LARP like that? We really wanted to sort of give, especially with Blood in the Bayou, that sort of TV feel. So we'd been watching a lot of um, Dark Shadows, which is this soap opera about this family that's got vampires and ghosts and werewolves, and is sort of like an early precursor to to sort of the True Blood kind of shows. And it is definitely it's it's these sort of three or four sets that everybody is always ending up in sort of no matter what. And, and like you said, they're, they're far apart, but it's just suddenly the people are there, you know, suddenly they're back at the house. Um, And so like being able to embrace that sort of um, suspension of disbelief that you get in a television show, I think also went for when we were writing the characters that we wanted these sort of archetypes that you can identify in so many of these Uh, supernatural shows or supernatural movies or literature um, to really give uh, players a hook to sort of instantly understand, oh, that's what kind of character this is. But the sets as well, um, sort of vampire bar has a common, right? right? It's, It's a common location, even if the vampire bar that you're thinking of is the one from True Blood and the vampire bar that I'm thinking of is the one from some other book or movie. Um, right. That there's enough sort of commonalities between them that we can share that space imaginatively. Right, right. And the exact image in our minds is not the same, but it's functionally the same enough that we can that we can at least be talking to each other. Exactly. You know, the other thing about Blood on the Bayou is that, you know, it it really it really wears its sort of the genre inspiration on its sleeve. And I've all seen like two episodes of True Blood, but I was still able to be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I know this. I can see this. Um, you know, Bloodnet was based on a video game of the same name and uh, there's a fanfic for that is basically Slash, the card game, the LARP. Um, is there something about live action play that's really well suited to adaptation? I really think so. Um, I wrote There's a Fanfic for that partially as a love letter to the Slash card game because I really, really enjoy playing it. Um, it's one of sort of my go-to party games because I feel like it is something that I can play with all sorts of different friends and it always comes out differently and I always have such a blast playing it. But it was also sort of my love letter to fan fiction, which I love because it allows people to explore genres, but to bring to them new and interesting ideas, more complicated characters, uh, plots that would never get shown on network television or in blockbuster movies. Mm. And for me, live action is a great way to do that, again, collaboratively, uh, so that you get a group of people together. And we all love True Blood, but there are things that we would change about it if we could. And this is our opportunity to do that. Um, So what would we, what would we like to see in our supernatural soap operas? Um, What are the characters we'd like to explore? What are the the themes that we don't see coming up? Um, What are, are the sort of relationships and interactions that, that we feel like are missing that we can bring in um, when we're doing this sort of live action play? Yeah, I f- that's super interesting. I'm I'm completely I'm we've talked about this before. I'm completely thinking of all the sort of fan response to all of the Marvel movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff where like those movies are mostly extremely boring to me and like <laughs> I don't care about them at all. But then I go online and I see these people who are like 
But what if <laughs> instead of punching people, they were smooching each other? And I'm like, oh, okay, now we're talking, you know? And that's it's exactly what you're saying. Like, there's never going to be a gigantic blockbuster movie about Captain America and Iron Man living together in a in a, a you know a domestic partnership. But but if that's what you're thinking of, and that's what you think is more interesting, you can go and make that exist in some form. Yeah, adaptation is powerful, and fan stuff is powerful. Hmm. I really want to talk to you also about a game that I got to play called Glitzy Nails, which was your contribution to the Hashtag Feminism anthology. Uh, first of all, tell, tell people a little bit about Hashtag Feminism. Uh, so Hashtag Feminism is an anthology of nano games. So these are games that are pretty condensed in terms of rules. They usually take up one or two pages. Um, they're meant to be very easy to sort of pick up and play. So you don't, you don't need a lot of prep uh, before the game, you can sort of decide with with a group of people, hey, we're going to play some hashtag feminism games. And they're also um, fairly quick. So most of them take between sort of an hour to a couple hours to run. Um, so they're, they're meant to be accessible to people that don't necessarily have a lot of prior experience doing role-playing games, um, but was also written uh, with the idea of touching on a really wide range of topics that are important to feminists. Um, and, and so ranging from sort of lighthearted games um, about feminist topics to much more sort of um, intense emotional experiences with, with much more sort of serious and heavy topics. Right, right. Everything from, hey, mom, I made this sex <laughs> tape to, you know, that one about abortion in Ireland that I think Kat Tobin yes. wrote. And I love how, like, on each game, there's a little, like, this many players and this long run time. And then they have, like, a number of blood drops that tells you how bleedy it is, like, how emotionally intense it is. It's just, like, three out of five drops. Oh, okay, that sounds doable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, your so your game, Glitzy Nails, I believe this was based on the work of Millian Kang and her ethnography um, or ethnographic work uh, on Korean-owned nail salons in New York City. Um, what about that research when you saw it made you go, oh yeah, I want to LARP that. We should LARP in there. Uh, so Millian Kang, who wrote the ethnography, um, managed the managed hand, which is what I base glitzy nails on, um, was actually faculty in my gender women's studies program at the University of Massachusetts. Um, so I heard a lot about her work. Um, I sort of read the, the article that she wrote, but also got to hear her talk a lot about the research process. And for me, that ethnography has always been one that I really, really love. I think it's it's really well, well done research. It's a really well written piece, but also that it really highlights for me some of the reasons why an intersectional perspective is so important uh, when we're talking about issues of feminism. And so when we were talking about uh, putting together the hashtag feminism anthology, I, I knew that I wanted my contribution to somehow touch on issues of intersectionality. And I had been playing around with this idea sort of before that of like doing a nail salon game. Could I turn this research about nail salons into a LARP? And, and again, just like I was talking about before, this was sort of the deadline that I needed. Right, right. To make me sort of seriously sit down and, and say, okay, if I were to turn this into a LARP, how would I do that? You know, I mean, this is a game that is about feminism and about racism and about expectations and emotional labor. And also it's a game where you paint each other's nails. Uh, what, what would you say were your goals in publishing this game and having people play it? 
First of all, I'm always really interested in relationships among women Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it can be very easy to fall into the trap of this sort of like sisterhood is powerful and solidarity. Mm -hmm. And while I think that that aspect of feminism is super important and can be super powerful, it also has the potential to really erase important differences among women and to really overlook the ways in which there is oppression and marginalization that takes place not just between men and women, but between different women. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that I wanted to sort of highlight was that this is an interaction between women. Um, The the nail salon workers and the nail salon customers are, are all women in this game, but that it's not a sisterhood is powerful kind of relationship. Um, It's definitely pretty exploitative. The other thing that I wanted to get at was that in her piece, Kang talks a lot about body labor, which is this term that she uh, brings up to discuss the ways in which emotional labor becomes even more fraught when there are bodies involved. And so the idea that you're touching someone else's hands and doing this very intimate, very detail-oriented work with the potential to get a little painful, it, it ratchets up the tension of the emotional labor mm-hmm. um, and makes it even more intense. And so for me, having that actual experience of doing someone else's nails was a way to help people to experience that. Um, So that it's not just talking about doing someone's nails, but actually having that physical embodied experience of of what is it like to to try to paint someone's nails when you know if you mess up, they're going to tell you pretty vocally (laughs) about what you've done wrong. Yeah, there's there's so much tension in that game. Like it's really, really palpable. And especially as like, I am not good at painting nails at all. Um, and I was playing with uh, with a man who I don't think had ever painted anyone's nails, including his own in his life. Yeah, it's there's so much pressure. It's like it's it's a fun game and it's a really interesting game. But there's just this constant level of like ambient tension in the room the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things that has been really interesting about the game. I think that because I gave it such a sort of like a uh, flippant title, um, which is actually Glitty Nails is the name of a uh, Korean owned nail salon uh, near where I live. Hmm. Uh, so it's an actual place. Right. Um, but I think that people sort of sort of see it and are like, oh, it's it's a nail polish game. Like, it's going to be fun and like lighthearted. <laughs> and then they sit down to play it and they're like, oh, this is really intense. Yeah. And I think that that it's really interesting for me how much the context matters, right? That like in other situations, I really enjoy painting other people's nails. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's this sort of fun communal activity of, of getting your nails done. But when you move it into the context of this uh, customer service relationship and there are tips on the line and you're expecting particular service um, because you are a customer, it, it changes that activity. So even if you're doing the exact same thing, um, it makes it so much more uh, tense and fraught and uncomfortable uh, than if you're just two friends sitting down at a table painting each other's nails. Right. Yeah. Context is everything. Yeah. That really sort of cute, friendly, welcoming uh, topic and title uh, kind of um, giving people an an entryway or a point of entrance into some like really serious, really heavy topics 
reminds me a lot of your game Revived, which I've been reading about, um, which is a zombie LARP, um, which is very appealing to lots and lots of people. Um, but it's actually a way to have conversations about oppression and, <laughs> and also about intersectional identities. Um, tell us a bit about that. Tell, tell us a bit about Revived and the conversations you've been able to have as a result of that. Uh, so Revived is my um, game about a zombie support group. It is also sort of a fan fiction LARP that I wrote. Um, I had been watching In the Flesh, which is a British show um, about zombies, but about sort of zombies that have been uh, rehabilitated after a zombie apocalypse and the experiences that they face uh, trying to go back to their old lives and reintegrate into society. And I loved the show, but it left me with all these questions about what about these other zombies that we didn't get to hear their stories? Um, right. How how would society deal with these people sort of coming back after this zombie apocalypse? And it really struck me while watching the show how well the writers and creators had used the zombie metaphor to talk about all of these issues of of oppression and prejudice and marginalization uh, in a way that really resonated with me and felt like this could be sort of a, a useful way to get people to talk about topics that can be really loaded. Um, so I sat down to write a game that would hopefully be fun to play, but would also allow me to really dig into some of the complexities of oppression and marginalization of, of many different types using the zombie metaphor. You know, you, you don't just talk about what is it like to be a zombie that comes back and tries to sort of rebuild their life. But, you know, is that much harder when you, when, you know, your mortal form was poor as hell or when your mortal form was queer or when you came from this community or that community or you're, you have this whole phenomenon of like zombies who are able to pass as, as living um, and those who aren't and that sort of being this like tenuous identity like that, it really, really resonated with me as, yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, when I sat down to start writing the characters, one of the things that I really wanted to explore uh, was the way in which marginalized folks don't always get along with each other. And that when it comes to talking about being marginalized or talking about oppression, it isn't like everybody sits down at the table and is like, yeah, oppression, it sucks. Let's fight it. And then they all agree on how to do it. Um, and this sort of idea of an intersectional perspective that people bring to the table very different experiences of marginalization, and they might have particular privileges in some areas of their lives that make uh, navigating the world easier for them. And they might have alliances to particular identities that shape the way in which they identify or disidentify with other aspects of their identity. Uh, so I tried to create like a pretty diverse group of zombies that did have different support groups in terms of how their family and their friends reacted, different access to employment, different abilities to sort of pass um, as uh, quote unquote normal humans, but also different orientations towards sort of things like did they feel like zombies were an oppressed uh, group in society? Did they feel like assimilation was the best solution to sort of these problems of marginalization? Um, how did they feel about groups that were sort of more radical in terms of their 
they're protesting for zombie rights. Uh So that you could really have discussions that mirror some of these fraught topics in contemporary society. Without having to actually... Yes. Yeah, this sort of, this slight, slight layer of safety of fiction. Did you have, do you have zombie separatists? Oh, yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Oh my goodness. The game always begins with the player sitting down and creating a, like a frequently asked questions document, um, Mm. which... I found is really helpful because it helps players to highlight what themes and issues they find really important and what they really want to explore. Um, Mm. But it's interesting what common, like what common themes tend to come up. And I feel like zombie separatists almost always show up in some form, uh, whether it's sort of a group of of the zombies deciding they're going to sort of form their own co-op or whether it's literally like, zombie separatists that have like gone off to Utah to to create their own zombie cities. Okay, there's there's two th- two more things I want to ask you about. Um the first is another game of yours I've not yet played called Glitter Pits, which is in the Queer Games anthology which just came out. First of all, tell me about Glitter Pits. What is that about? Uh so Glitter Pits uh came out of multiple discussions that I've had with lots of queer friends of mine about beauty norms. Uh, And I took the title Glitter Pits from this article that got posted. It went around my Facebook feed for a little while um, about these folks, especially like women folks who um, refuse to shave their armpits. And instead of just being like, yeah, I'm not shaving my armpits, fuck you, social norms, Uh, would like decorate them with glitter as a way of sort of like celebrating and drawing attention to the fact um, that something that uh, sort of mainstream society uh, says should be ugly and sort of disgusting is actually beautiful and should be celebrated. And I Mm -hmm. really, really loved that idea. Um, As a woman who does not shave her armpits, there's always like those uncomfortable situations where I'm like, oh, somebody gonna yeah um, mm-hmm. so that was sort of my inspiration of like this idea of how queer communities and queer culture and queer folks really have this uh ability to take and queer expectations and norms and, and not mm-hmm. just to sort of like say I'm not I'm not gonna do this like the way that society tells me to um whether that's gender or relationships or fashion, but to celebrate that difference um, and and to turn something that sort of normative or mainstream society might find unpleasant or even uh, disgusting into something that is beautiful and celebrated. Now, where did where did the Queer Games Anthology project come from? I remember hearing the vague idea of it possibly existing maybe like around last year or six months ago or something. Um, and then boom, all of a sudden it appears on my <laughs> feeds um, that the anthology is out. What? Uh, who, who was behind that? How did you get involved? Um, so uh, Kayan Granger with Goldfinch Games uh, sort of spearheaded the effort. Um, and a call went out uh, looking for submissions and they recruited some judges. They wanted to give out uh, some awards, really prioritizing um, intersectional games. Um, so they, they gave a prize for the best game that dealt with the experiences of uh, queer folks of color, which is 
what uh, Glitter Pits ended up winning. Um, and then there was also one for non-binary experience um, and one for disability and, and queerness. And Jacqueline Brick, who is another uh, LARP designer who does some really, really cool stuff. She was the, the co-editor of the collection. So they, they sort of collected uh, the, the games. And then I, I was also really impressed with uh, how quickly they were able to edit and put the collection together and make it look so awesome sitting there on the <laughs> Amazon page. <laughs> yeah, that's very exciting. Um, what's, um, what's the, I mean, we talked about hashtag feminism bit as well. What's the joy or what's the kind of advantage of being in or getting to be a part of an anthology versus putting stuff out on your own? I think for me, part of it is that I don't always have the time or resources to, particularly when it comes to formatting and graphic design stuff. Like I really just... I find it tedious. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, so part of it is that I love the fact that I could send in glitzy nails and glitter pits and have someone else make them look really professional and polished right. um, in this anthology. Um, but I also love the idea that you get to see so many different people's perspectives on a topic. The Queer Games Anthology, the games are so different um, and really, I think, do an amazing job of providing a really wide perspective of what the queer experience is or can be. Right. Um, so it's it's great to have access to um, lots of different people's vision. Right. And so, so you end up with a more nuanced argument than just, here's my game, the game about being queer. And said it's like, here are some perspectives, here are some experiences, here are some interpretations. Yeah. And I think for, for topics like feminism and queerness, that's really important. Oh, right? yeah. That, that having a singular narrative is really problematic and should be avoided. And so having these, these anthologies where you get uh, this, this wider range of voices is really important. Mm -hmm. Now, finally... I have heard that you were involved in Just a Little Lovin', the, the team kind of bringing it to North America uh, for the first time in 2017, which is the most exciting thing on earth. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me, well, first of all, Just a Little Lovin' is a, is a weekend-long Nordic LARP about the early days of the AIDS crisis in New York City. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, and you went to one of, the, one of the runs in Denmark? Yes. Cool. And what was that experience like, first of all? So just a little loving. It's it's one of those games where you know I sort of heard people say things like, "Oh, it will, it will change your life." Um, it's the most powerful LARP that I ever played, uh, and I tend to be one of those people that's pretty skeptical of that kind of talk. But I have to say, having played the game, that that the hype is definitely totally worth it. Wow. Uh, that it is a, an incredibly powerful experience. Um, that it really did, uh, I think, change my life in, in ways that I think I'm still sort of discovering a year later. But it, it was something that I think all of us from North America who played in that run sort of afterwards were like, we have to bring this to North America. Uh, we have to give people who can't travel to, to Denmark or Sweden the opportunity to, to play this game uh, because we felt like it was such a powerful and important uh, experience to give to other people. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a LARP that's set in America, right? And it takes place yes. over three Fourth of July parties or yes. something like that, right? That's that's the narrative setup. That's correct. Um, right. So to me, it just feels like, of course, you're going to want to have that game in America, you know, and it's about such an important and not often taught period of American history at the same time. Um, what has the what is the process of porting a game like that to America been? We are just in the very early stages of organizing the game. Um, we're sort of still assembling a volunteer team. We're, we're trying to secure a site. And that has already been a challenge. Um, in the Nordic countries, they have a lot more access to space. They have a lot more um, organizational support. Uh, they have a lot more state funding that they can apply for. Uh, so one of the things for the organizing team, which is made up of Evan Torner and Tom Fent and John Cole and I, uh, is that we want the game to be uh, very accessible in terms of price, uh, that we really want to make sure that folks who want to play in the game uh, are not prevented from playing because they don't have the financial resources trying to find a space that would both meet our needs in terms of the game, uh, that would be accessible in terms of, you know, issues of, of walking and disability, and also that is not going to cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars for people to, to participate. Um, right. That has sort of been our first challenge. Um, and we've also been doing a lot of sort of research and discussion, looking into things about the game um, in terms of trans representation, in terms of representations of, of people of color, mm -hmm. um, to make the game more inclusive in uh, the context of North America. Because the game, as it was originally written, uh, was written to be played in the Nordic countries. Right. So there was definitely, I think, some, some discomfort on the part of, of the writers uh, Hannah and TK about um, having a bunch of of white Swedish or or Danish folks um, deal with race in America, right? Uh, with without having any sort of uh, sort of context for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's very different if you're running the game in the United States um, because mm -hmm. you we are wanting to have uh, a wide variety of of players to play in the game. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. You know, a lot of people talk about Just a Little Lovin' being this kind of transformative experience or something that stays with you for a really, really long time. What are what are the lingering effects of playing that game for you? I think the game is powerful for a lot of reasons. Um, I think that the fact that sort of the three themes of the game are uh, friendship, desire, and fear of death. And those are all really powerful themes uh, to explore. So for me personally, um, having a game that really highlights dealing with death, sort of facing perhaps your own death, facing the death of, of loved ones, that was really powerful. Um, having a game in which queer desire is celebrated, is openly practiced, is discussed, that was also a tremendously powerful experience uh, for me uh, and really having a game in which you created this queer space uh, was super amazing. Um, and then the, the final thing about the game in terms of the friendship was having these relationships, which really in reality were three days old, uh, but which at the end of the game, you really felt like these people were your close friends in a way that that I 
had not really experienced uh, in a LARP ever before. And and having that kind of, of weird, bleedy experience of feeling so tremendously close to this group of people that had gone through this very intense emotional experience with me, but didn't actually know me, Kat Jones, at all. <laughs> um, right. But knew instead uh, my character and sort of uh, how to how to negotiate that uh, was really a really interesting experience as well. Right. Um, I was lucky enough to go to you uh, or your and Mo's um, sex mechanics workshop at Living Games, where you talked about a couple of different games' sex mechanics. I know it's much harder to do it over audio, but I was so fascinated by the the pink feather and the phallus method from Just a Little Loving. Do you think you can explain that to our listeners? I will give it give it my best shot. Um, so the the pink feather and the phallus method are the two methods used for sexual encounters in the game. Uh, the pink feather is sort of the establishing meta technique. Uh, so anytime uh, a character wants to have sex with another character or characters, they will present them with a pink feather. Acceptance of the pink feather means that you are consenting to play a sex scene with this other uh, character. And once the pink feather has been exchanged, then you engage in a meta discussion of what that sex scene is going to look like, um, particularly what you want to achieve uh, with this sex scene. And the different players slash characters can have different goals, but you want to make sure that everyone is okay with how things are going to progress. And that is when the phallus comes in. Uh, so the, the phallus for the listeners at home to sort of picture is, is a wooden uh, phallus-shaped object. Uh, it, it doesn't specifically look like a, a penis or a dildo. Right, just kind of cylindrical. Exactly. Uh, in our game, they were painted sort of hot pink so that they were pretty easily identifiable if you were looking for one. And when you have uh, the phallus, you use it symbolically to symbolize sort of the, the that sexual activity is happening and to symbolize sort of the, the sexual energy. Um, and, and it gets used in many different ways. Um, sometimes it's used very representationally um, as a sort of penetrating object. Um, other times uh, it's sort of integrated um, in other ways into the sex scene. Right. And, and that's kind of up to the creativity of the players and how, how abstract or, or how directly representational they want to be. Exactly. One of the key things in Just a Little Lovin is that clothing has to be kept on during sex scenes and that genital contact uh, is not allowed. Right. Um, so you, you are encouraged to simulate sex acts and to make them uh, to sort of the, the outside or casual observer look very explicit without them actually being genital contact going on between the players involved in the scene. You know, you say in your keynote that in your design, sex should mean something. You know, you can't just tack sex on to the, to the end of your design. How does that mechanic make sex mean something? One of the things that I really, really liked about both the, the pink feather and the phallus uh, being used in just a little love in was that it really, like you said earlier, leaves a lot up to the creativity of the players. Um, and so you could have within the, the span of the game, a lot of different types of sexual encounters. 
you could have sexual encounters that were a way to uh, not have to deal with problems in a relationship. You could have sexual encounters that were all about the physical release of the sex act. You could have sex acts that were very uh, tender and loving. You could have sex acts that were uh, very rough. Uh, you could have uh, sex that was experienced very differently by the people involved so that one person was like, oh, this was a super fun hookup. And the other person was like, my heart has just been broken because I realized this person <laughs> doesn't love me. Um, yeah. and, and that to me, I think is really so key that, that sex can have so many different meanings, uh, that sexuality can be experienced in, in so many different ways. And, and a me mechanic that allows you to explore that range while also really doing a lot to make sure that players feel comfortable and safe with what is being explored. That for me was sort of like this moment where I was like, yes, this, mm. this is like how it should be done. <laughs> Not just have it mean something, but the potential to have it mean lots of different things, I think is, is especially for a, a longer game like this, that highlights uh, sex and desire so heavily, that is super important. Right. And, and also the way that relationships change over time and you feel differently about people. And maybe an advantage of the phallus method too is that then you get to um, also have a mechanic that represents uh, like safe sex or degrees of safety in sexual encounters, right? Because yes. there are pink feathers lying all over the place. I think Mo said, uh, you know, you're going to be finding pink feathers in your luggage and in your clothes and in your <laughs> for weeks afterwards. So there's feathers everywhere and there's phalluses everywhere. And there are condoms around, but they're not as easy to find. And you have to specifically make a point of going and putting one on the phallus. Does that have mechanical consequence? Because I know people die in this game. Yes. The, the safe sex aspect adds this other layer of, of complexity to the sexual encounters that, again, I found uh, really powerful. Uh, because I also feel like a lot of games that deal with sex don't tend to deal with uh, safer sex practices or contraceptives or that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it's interesting because the, the first night of the game is sort of the, the first, the first year of the, the 4th of July party. And at that party, uh, it, it was very hard to find condoms, but by the third night of the party, it was much easier to find condoms. And there were particular characters who you sort of knew that you could go to uh, if you needed a condom, if you needed a dental dam, uh, if you needed a pair of gloves, because they were there to help encourage safer sex practices. You could make a lot of choices as a character about how much did you care about this? Uh, how much were you going to go out of your way uh, to pick up a condom? Uh, my character uh, was positive by the last night of the game and was very sort of adamant that she was going to practice safer sex because she didn't want to expose anyone else. And so carried around with her a pair of gloves uh, because she always wanted to be prepared and didn't want to have a situation where uh, things were getting hot and heavy and, and there were no uh, no condoms or no gloves or anything around. So I think you you got to make a lot of these decisions that again, communicated things about your character and their relationship towards sex and sexuality. Right. And, and in a way that changes and evolves. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. 
Well, um, it was super interesting having you on. If our listeners want to keep up with what you're doing or maybe find and play some of your games, uh, where can they find you? Uh, Facebook or G Plus are my, my primary places. I'm hoping to put together uh, some sort of website in the next few months um, and make my games a little bit more accessible to, to folks that I haven't met in person. That's cool. All right. Well, thanks to Kat for joining me. And as always, thank you for listening. Don't forget to find Cat's Games in the hashtag Feminism Anthology and in the Queer Games Anthology, which I'll link to in the show notes. If you have thoughts on today's show, remember that you can reach me via email at backstorypodcast at gmail.com, on Google Plus at Backstory Podcast, or on Twitter at Backstorycast. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. You can find more great shows like One Shot, Campaign, Modifier, Talking Tabletop, First Watch, and Second Watch, all at oneshotpodcast.com. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more at soundcloud.com slash Ujiko. Talk to you later, heroes.